Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, people and culture strategist, specializing in DEI and people analytics. And joining me is our co-host and everyone's best friend, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, welcome. Welcome. How are you, Rob? Everyone's huh? best friend? Everyone's best friend. That. Well, you, know, you also it's you shouldn't say that because my my actual best friends will be like, oh God, we know. <laughs> They're just like so fed up with my social circles. Well, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they're listening and they can give you some they can give you some feedback. You know, we uh, I did want to share with you one thing, Nadia. We did actually okay. we get some feedback. We got yeah. feedback. Okay. Yeah, we got some. You, you want to hear it? Is it good or bad? Well, I gotta so brace myself. The, the feedback that it was that apparently I can't learn Japanese in six months. That's the feedback. Oh, that we got. I mean, I, I, so who so, gave, well, so you, you don't so say who, a couple but... of weeks ago, you asked me what language I would want to learn. And I said uh -huh. that I would want to learn Japanese and I thought I could do it in like six months. So apparently, I think you actually said, I thought you said three and I was like, I, so. <laughs> <laughs> I said okay. I could learn some languages in three months. So apparently Alex also from Utah, also from okay. my street, also from my street, actually. Uh, oh, cool. Wait, he's, is he's, he okay he's, with you saying this? <laughs> He said it will take. I'll ask you. I'll walk okay. down the street and ask. Um, apparently, it takes more like eighteen months. And it, but you know, what does Alex know, right? What is uh, apparently Alex? Uh, uh, apparently, he knows Japanese. That's what he knows. So, oh, uh, that's hilarious. Yes. If I really wanted to learn Japanese, I, this is the person I would ask. And he says it's more yeah. like eighteen months. Um, so I, I want to change my answer to your question. Now I would like okay. to learn Z the South African uh, language okay. of Zulu. And I think I can do it in about two and a half months. Oh, oh, I don't. Okay. <laughs> let's see who's going to give us feedback to say that's not possible. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Again, it's I do love it. Did he give tips in terms of like how to learn the language? Was, was he like, you got to immerse yourself into the, into the community it and. He went through how he did it, and let's just say he has more patience than, than I do. So yeah, yeah, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great, though. I love that he's listening. Thank you, Alex. We appreciate your feedback. We are welcome and open to more. So please, I'd love to more hear feedback. His take on, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'd love to hear his take on you learning Zulu. So. <laughs> Uh, very good. Well, hey, let's go ahead and get to the deets. Um, so these are the latest news, workplace CE&I stories that we're watching. I'll go ahead first. Um, earlier this month, the U.S. Senate candidate John Fetterman of Pennsylvania was seeking auditory um, processing accommodations by requesting a live transcription on um, his first on-air interview since having a stroke. Uh, many in the ableism community um, felt that NBC's correspondent who was hosting the show, kind of his, the reactions and responses to the re this request were uncalled for, insensitive, and discriminative. Unfor you know, Lester Holt being one of them called it, um, it's not your typical candidate interview. I don't, I don't know Lester Holt, but I don't think that he had bad <laughs> intentions on saying that, but the impact of what he said is like basically othering, right? You're kind of now mm -hmm. saying that mm -hmm. like John Fetterman's not typical because of his uh, request and his um, maybe disability or just need for um, accommodations. Um, so I'll pause there. Your reactions to this? So I agree. I do know. I do know Lester Holt. Actually, no, just kidding. Oh, uh, right. do you? The, no, <laughs> the um. But I I looked at the interview and I watched the story and I thought it was. Okay. 
I think this whole story is really just is going to be a giant leap forward, actually. And I think that yeah. when John Fetterman wins that Senate seat, I think it will normalize the use of that technology, normalize the ascension of people in the U.S. Senate that have disabilities or that have had strokes or have had or have other neurological um, conditions. And so I saw the video that made some people feel uncomfortable for some reason, but I, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is really cool technology. Yeah. Um, it's alarming only because it's such a non-issue for me, right? So John Fetterman wouldn't be our first senator to have suffered a stroke or to uh -huh. serve while after having a stroke. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people recover from strokes all the time. So I just thought, I, I think it'll be a giant leap forward. A number of senators have, have done their job with what I consider much more uh, damaging characteristics, right? Um, you know, for example, we know that Mitch McConnell has served for many years and he, he apparently has no soul. Right. And so, you know, he's, he's actually <laughs> functioned quite. Are we going political? <laughs> Is that what's happening right now? <laughs> he's, he's functioned quite well, you know, for, for okay, many years. Yeah. So, I, so I, I, okay. I thought, I think I looked at it in a positive way, but yeah, I mean, the, the coverage was just, it was disgraceful and I, I did not yeah. enjoy the, the story that you sent me. Yeah. Yeah, and this is a race in Pennsylvania where John Fetterman is um, racing against candidate Dr. Oz. What I loved was Fetterman's um, response was that, you know, he's recovering from a stroke. So he said recovering from a stroke in public isn't easy, but in January, I'm going to be much better. And Dr. Oz is still a fraud. And I kind of love that. <laughs> <laughs> like, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> So I thought that John, was great. John Fetterman's awesome. Did you see the Barack Obama interview where he talked about John Fetterman and, and how he, you know, what people like about him is that yes. he connects. And so I would just remind yeah. people that one in four American adults has uh, has a disability of some sort, yeah. right? So it's not, so this yeah. is not an unusual thing. Uh, a lot of people yeah. suffer from strokes and recover from strokes. And I think he's going to be just fine. And I think we need to continue to make it a norm to ask for accommodations when we when we need them. So I love Absolutely. it. So thank you for thank you for indulging. Um, what's your story? What's your deet? My deet is uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a proper phrase, but Steve Ballmer, the former Microsoft chair, and his wife Connie. Apparently, they are investing mm -hmm. four hundred million dollars in black lead venture capital and private equity funds. First of all, Nadia, I just like to say so we had. Marcos Gonzalez of Vamos Ventures on last week talking about investing in underrepresented founders and VC funds. And one week later, we get this story. So, Steve Ballmer, thanks for listening. The, you yeah. Know, again, you know, th thanks Connie, for moving things forward. If you were listening yeah. Connie, and influenced anyone. It's probably Connie. Totally. It probably, you're it like totally Connie. good points. It was yeah. totally Connie. So, yeah. uh, any any reactions? I have a few. I uh, just, just ask you. How, I mean, what do you no, I mean, no, story? I think it's, I think it is great. I think we got to invest. Um, you know, in communities where um, consumers are representing um, kind of the demographic. I'm curious if this will be, I don't want to say like a trend, but like, a tr you know, I'm curious if other leaders who have this much money will follow suit um, and see the value in investing. Um, what are the rest of your thoughts? Yeah, so I agree with all of that, Nadia. A couple of things right here. So it's a nice start. I agree that it's, it's a positive trend and hopefully it gets others to contribute in a very similar way. So $400 million, it's probably a four to six year commitment there. I'd like to remind you that Steve Ballmer is worth $85 billion. And so this huh, is like yikes. a person that makes $100,000 giving around $400, right, to a yeah. uh, cause that they care about, which is great. I don't love the structure. So Fairview Capital and Goldman Sachs will then invest the Ballmer's money into 
VC firms on behalf of the Palmers. Oh, so they have like control uh, over who they're so, investing in. in so they have the control, and then the the funds themselves only have to invest thirty percent of uh, of what they have into uh, companies led by black led founders. And so I might have done it, you know, slightly differently uh, if mm-hmm. I had my own eighty five billion to throw around, uh, but no one asked me. <laughs> The one, one thing day, I would one t- day, Rob. <laughs> yeah, when I have my eighty-five billion, <laughs> I will do it differently. The what I do find interesting, and I always make it into a sports story. So Balmer, as you know, or you may know, owns the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team, and he acquired that team after the previous owner, Donald Sterling, was caught on tape making racist remarks, uh, and he was forced to sell that team. And so I think it's likely that this is a continuation <sighs> of of Balmer's efforts to repair. Uh, the ties oh, with like his repar- organization. It's like his own reparations yeah. for his prior, okay, predecessor. So, yeah, the, it's yeah. for a relationship, a bad relationship with that community that he inherited. And so I applaud that. And I, again, I, th- I think mm-hmm. uh, it's just hopefully the start of something more. And yeah. uh, and so hopefully it's just getting started. And hopefully they have really great returns, and I'm sure they will. And uh, and he'll want to do another fund that is $4 billion instead of $400 million. Love it. Well, um, let's go ahead and take a short break. We'll be back with our guest, Jeff Dagbo. Welcome back. Our guest today is Jeff Dagbo. Jeff is a co-founder and CEO of Eat Digital, where he leads strategy sales and vision for a firm that is changing the way we eat out by reshaping how diners interact with restaurants. Um, Previously, Jeff was at Gallup, where he led the private equity advisory practice, as well as sat on the leadership board for Gallup's Diversity Council. He has also served in leadership roles at Goldman Sachs, where he advised institutional investors and co-chaired the firm's task force to promote a diversity and inclusion strategy. He also held um, a committee role for Goldman Sachs' 10,000 small business program, where he evaluated small business owners and startup um, operating and financial models. Currently, Jeff serves as a partner of Corn Ferry, where he advises C-suite executives on executing their strategies. His leadership in the community includes his work to found a social impact investing fund that provides sustainable capital to charitable organizations. Jeff is an author of multiple articles. He has no doubt done a lot, as I have listed, and we are <laughs> thrilled um, on having him join us. Welcome, Jeff. So good to have you here with us today. Good to be here. Good to be excited. Jeff, it's uh, so nice to meet you. Thanks again for being with us today. What has surprised you about being the founder of a SaaS company based on some of the work that you've done previously and, and what has played out so far exactly how you thought it would play out? Yeah, no, a great, great question. I think every experience I've had, I knew growing up I wanted, I've loved building. And so I've always loved being a builder. And mm-hmm. so that, whether that's building, you know, something small at home to kind of going to Gallup and building a practice to, to go into Goldman and learning how to build. It's all helped me along the way. And so I wanted to garner experiences along the way to then help me get to the point of what is it going to take for me to build a sustainable startup? And so Goldman taught me a lot about how companies manage money, mm-hmm. right? At the top and bottom line. They taught, it taught me a lot around how we evaluate businesses, what, what we look for, how those institutional investors make decisions. Um, Gallup, taught me about how we consult at the people level, right? How do organizations think about leveraging people, how decisions are made at the top of the house. And so building that practice allowed me to really kind of put those skills to the test and then dovetail into eDigital, 
now I go into an organization and I have a great idea of how capital is raised and how organizations prioritize themselves and people. And so it allowed me to say, okay, here's the way I would want to do it. I take those learnings um, and kind of implement them. And along the way, there are things that I've learned about myself that have helped me get better. Mm -hmm. Um, But nothing truly prepares you for a startup. There are so many (laughs) things that come up that you don't expect. But I think everything, the combination of my experiences helped me say, I can be agile. I can be learned. I can be coachable. And I can put the right people with me to, to kind of take on this journey. So, you know, just kind of digging into those experiences that you said, what are those? Can you give us examples of some of those experiences that maybe from like your Goldman Sachs days or your, you know, Gallup days that you learned that are helping you see or unravel sort of things as you, you know, work on this on this digital startup? Yeah. Yeah. I know. I think from the financial perspective, it's kind of having the right idea of how to build a sustainable business model, mm. right? What are the components of from the economics of your product to um, how you take it to market and what are the what are the different levers you need to pull to take something to market to once you gain capital. That's really, I think most folks celebrate the win of, of getting a raise, which is important, mm-hmm. but then how do you make sure you um, are responsible with that money? You're managing that cash flow accordingly. So that you can raise the next round or, or be in position. And so Goldman taught me a lot of that as I was sitting there evaluating other business owners. Mm-hmm. I also learned a lot about what their pain points were. So you start to see kind of familiarity in terms of what people are going through at certain points. And so how do I prepare myself for that? And ultimately, I always like to say, like as a founder, it's our, always our job as we're meeting with investors to show how we can de-risk the business. What mm-hmm. are we doing to essentially de-risk that business so that it can entice you to be a believer of us and the organization we're building? And so mm-hmm. Goldman really gave me that foundation. I think Gallup and Corn Ferry, through the lens of talent, continue to make me realize the importance of people. Mm-hmm. And I took an approach of how do you get the right talent through the door? How do you evaluate that talent? And it's a different type of talent that I think at a corporate level than it is at a startup level. And I think there's different skill sets that are needed. And so I was able to, to really learn from the organizations I was consulting with, what are those skill sets that I need? And then the importance of talent, I made my team a little bit bigger a lot earlier because mm-hmm. I was more so focused on having the right people in the right seats from a culture perspective. Love that. Yeah. I want to dig into that a little bit. I mean, so... My theory has always been the private equity does not look at yeah. workplace culture as a lever mm-hmm. that the companies can use in order to create value enough. Yeah, certainly some yeah. do. And I know that you know just just uh, researching you and your background that you've you've taken a similar stance and and done a lot of work in that regard. And so so as you build your company, so give us some more of those things that you're doing to say to be very intentional about using people and culture in order to create value in the organization that you're building. Yeah, Rob, I think you're 100% right. I think traditionally, private equity, venture capital, the private markets tend to not look at people intentionally as a lever for driving growth, where, you know, my work has always been, how do you maximize your human capital potential? Because that will ultimately give you the growth you need in all the er- in the areas, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even my work in consulting, it wasn't always um, something that was bought by every single private equity firm, but I think ESG has been a big driver into how investors, where investors put money, right? They're not putting money towards organizations that aren't looking at ESG. 
and, and I put human capital in the lender DSG, right? Mm-hmm. And so you might, you know, investors will start to pull dollars away from private equity firms that don't have that mm-hmm. human capital focus. And so that, that was helpful. But for digital, for my, my thing was creating a diverse management team. I wanted to make sure the founders were extremely diverse uh, and which we are. I wanted to make sure that the entire team was diverse. So our our CTO as a black as a black CTO, I wanted to make sure our head of product was diverse and we have a female head of product. Uh, she's diverse. And so I wanted, I was very intentional about every position we hired um, having diversity. And so that also brought diversity of thought. And so and then I also brought in a chief people officer early on. Wow. Right. And so most people don't bring those in until they get to a certain level. Mm. But I wanted to establish a, a culture at how we hire and how we look at talent uh, much earlier than a traditional CF, CPO would have been, been brought on. That's great, actually. And uh, just to dig a little bit deeper into that, because I'm all about the people practices. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love human yeah, yeah, behavior yeah. and culture and people and talent. You know, I was just looking at Eat Digital's mission, um, and just for folks mm-hmm. that don't know, so you know, the the mission is to make every interaction meaningful by deepening the relationship between diners and restaurants. Aims to enrich, simplify, and humanize di- the dining experience for restaurants and diners alike. So, tell me more about how that yeah. evolved and how you got to that point, and what are you folks hoping to to do, and how does the team work together to really fulfill that mission? Yeah, no, so Meet Digital is something that it's always been on my mind, probably going back to when I graduated in 2012. I think we've all had experiences where we go to restaurants on the consumer side as guests, right? And it's you're going with a group of people or by yourself and you're you're on Yelp, right, to look at photos, but then you have to go on Resi, you have to go and talk to kind of reserve. Mm-hmm. And then you may go to the restaurant, right? And you're with friends and you have to bring on your credit card and then use Venmo as well to then split. And so what I saw as, in, as we got into 2019 is a chance that, you know, with the handheld devices we have, we could consolidate a lot of the different movement that guests are having across different platforms into one platform. And so we sought out in 2019 to say, can we create a consumer app that centralizes all those different experiences? So no longer does Rob have to go on Yelp to look at a photo, but then go on Resi and then go here and then go on Venmo. Yeah. And then and I Rob pay for the meal now... with Rob on yeah. Venmo, and then, right? Yeah. And then you pay for <laughs> oh, a lot of work. Rob, Rob, exactly. Rob, I, I don't what? pay. Yeah, I don't pay. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Rob chooses yeah. not to pay. That's why Rob. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Rob uses one app to do all of his in-dining experience. And so subsequently that, that made us say, to do this, we now need to connect with the current platforms in the restaurant. And so we sought to look at that. And, and what we have covered is a lot of those platforms are obviously different and they have certain limitations. And so we said, let's actually build our own other side of the platform, the restaurant facing side, because they too had similar problems where they're using Resi, they're using Toast, they're using all these other platforms. And so they have multiple invoices, multiple technology costs, multiple system limitations. Mm-hmm. And so we've set, essentially decided to let's consolidate that side of the platform too. For the restaurants, we've created a, a cloud-based system that includes every technology stack under one roof. Mm-hmm. And then for the guests, we do the same thing. So it's really a two-sided system that allows guests to find you, order from you, share with friends on one ecosystem. And then for the restaurant, they also get to manage all of their technology uh, systems on one side. And the beautiful part about our system, it allows us to decrease costs for restaurants. It allows us to share the right data to them at the right time and the right insightful information. And so we, we've done a lot to, to really um, kind of minimize the costs for restaurants over time. 
also create a really beautiful experience for the guests. Oh yeah. What is what a you know streamlined kind of experience for the guests or just someone seeking a restaurant and just that whole experience. It's great. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. My next question is how do you do all that? No, just like <laughs> that that seems really hard uh to pull together. But I oh, yeah. but I, I want to go back to your the intentionality around building your team. And as you were going through all that, obviously you're, you're a deep technology company, but you're in this most diverse of industries now. You're in the restaurant industry. And so how does that team that you built and the diversity that you have established so far on your team, how does that help you build this product or, or compete in the industry that you're, that you're going into? Yeah. So I think a part of the intentionality of the team was also me being intentional about our advisors. And so and mm. the people we wanted to help advise us. And so the team has a lot of experience in product development, in consulting with the industry, in working in the industry. But we also wanted to make sure we had a group of advisors that from all levels, general managers to owners to operators, that we can continually plug into our product sessions to make sure we're validating what we're talking about. We actually spent over six months talking to thousands of owners across the United States, um, interviews, one-on-one sessions, and then talking to uh, a lot of customers Mm -hmm. to understand every pain point that you as a customer would feel and as a restaurant. And so we've established the core team, but we've also established an advisory group of restaurateurs uh, that we can bring into our sessions, that we can bounce ideas from, and to ensure that we're always keeping pulse of what we're building, but validating that. That's great. I dug a little bit on your website and I was so excited because not a lot of startups have values. And I noticed that you folks have four values. I'll go ahead and name them because I I really love them. So continuous improvement at your core, reward system that benefits the whole person, autonomy breeds work-life balance, and then diversity drives our decision-making. Can you talk a little bit more about like what inspired you to create these especially as a startup company, because oftentimes startups don't spend the time to talk about what values they have and what's kind of expected from each other as as coworkers or to the customer. So I'm curious, what's inspired you to create these? Yeah, I think it goes back to the amount of time, obviously I'm a diverse founder, but also the time I've spent on the diversity committees that I've spent. Mm. When I was building the team and I brought, I brought on our chief people officer, we had a shared understanding of what does it take to keep talent here, but also engaged. And so we wanted to make sure we established kind of core tenants to how we see what I call culture, how we do things around here. Mm-hmm. And so those are those core tenants. We spent a lot of time just making sure that, you know, if you think about compensation in the workplace today, it's not transparent. There is this silent approach to it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you see that value around a award system that benefits the person. And so we've had conversations about what is what do benefits look like for individuals, right? And I remember when I was at work at the bank, right? You know, traditionally they always say put money in your 401k, but there's a lot of people with different backgrounds. So when you come in, the 401k may not be the most important thing for that person. It right. could be the fact that they have to pay a lot of debt off. They need to support X. And so when we when we talk as a team, we say, how do we build a company that's future focused? And so benefits could mean something different to everybody at a different life cycle. Mm-hmm. So these are the pillars we want folks to see that if you join us today, this is where we want to take this organization. And we've invested a lot of time into thinking through that because we know people are our most important assets. That's really cool. 
I'm just curious, uh, you talked about the intentionality around advisors. How did you think about, and, and again, going back to your experience, the, your uh, expertise in, in advisory, how did you think about the investors that you, that you wanted to partner yeah. with? And, and, and what were your experiences? Did you have any experiences raising capital that were different than what you thought it would, what it would look like? For the investors, we spent the first year and a half bootstrapping the business mm. with the management team. So that's what we did. And, and building a SaaS company, as you all know, it, it could be very capital intensive to mm -hmm. start, mm -hmm. right? But I didn't want to go down that approach because I wanted to make sure we can keep as much ownership into the folks that are really putting their putting boots on the ground and working. Uh, and so we bootstrapped it. And even from an investor standpoint, knowing what I knew in terms of working on the financial side with investors. I knew that we didn't want, we as an organization, so we don't want to raise a large round to start with, but we wanted to find the right angels and investors, but also we wanted to find investors that were diverse. And that was actually even harder, right? Wow. Yeah. It's one thing we know, we know the statistics around getting capital as a diverse founder, but it's also, it's even harder to find diverse investors, right? Mm -hmm. That are available. There's not a really a form to find them. Even so with, even with your, to, even with your network, it was hard yeah. to find them. Even with my network, right? Wow. Uh, you know, the team has folks that come from other financial services firms as well. We all have a vast network. Even with that network, I think we've, we, it was less than 5% of our conversations. Wow. Right. Wow. And so that was frustrating for us. It, it's finding that. So we spent time sitting through and say, what do we want out of an investor? Just like the same thing we talk about in, in the folks that we bring on the team. What type of investor do, do we want to add to our cap table? What does that look like? What do they bring to the table? Um, and we really kind of created those characteristics. Mm -hmm. And then we looked at our network and said, who really embodies that? Right. And this is obviously after you do your financial model and you say kind of how much do you need to raise? We now start to think about who are the investors we want. Uh, and then we landed on a handful of those that really fit the model. And then you, you make your, your, your reach outs and your calls and you kind of do your roadshow. You present. I, I think we were lucky enough to get the uh, four investors that we felt fit our mode. But mm -hmm. there along the way, there was challenges in, in the conversations that we did have uh, and folks kind of believing in the vision. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately we had a criteria in terms of the type of investors we want. We wanted diverse investors, but we wanted also the ability to, to run the organization the way we knew we wanted right. to run. And not all investors are on board with that, right? They, they want to insert themselves as they, as they see that. So. so what advice would you give to someone starting out, someone um, kind of with like similar background, maybe someone who has access to maybe similar networks and is searching for some of that like advisory commitment? What, would, what advice would you give to them in terms of looking for people that align to the values that you have and to, and to the mission and really giving you the, the agency and autonomy to like really push your work forward without them in, inserting themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, that's hard. I would imagine it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a game of numbers, right? We had, we had uh, advisors, two advisors that we thought aligned, but you know, you start to work with them and you realize that there was an alignment. So we had to let them go. And so mm. I think you have to have clarity in terms of just like you build, you know, when we started bringing people on, we built really robust job descriptions and requirements on both sides. And, you know, as early on as we started to do that, that's even with employee number like three, like we really oh, got wow. clear around expectations for everybody. Yeah. That's including myself, our COO, as you go down the line, because we wanted to be clear 
that these are what everyone's supposed to do. Here's what, here's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And so that's the same thing with our investors. It's how, what do you, what do you want on an investor, but what are you also providing that? And cause we're getting clear around that, right. When it comes mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. when it comes to, um, what are they supposed to bring to the table? All of that stuff, you gotta, you gotta get clear on that. And then mm-hmm. you look at your network. Uh, and you start to match. And I think the challenging part is not everyone has the strong network, right? And that, and and so there is compromises. What are you willing to compromise on as a, as an organization um, that you can let go? Because you know there is a balance between the need for capital, mm-hmm. right, and and getting everything you want out of every situation. Nobody's perfect, right? That's exactly. Certainly, certainly applies to investors as well. Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, unfortunately. Jeff, what, yeah, unfortunately. I'm curious, Jeff, what how would you describe like your leadership style? Because I feel like you you've worked in these organizations where there's a, a lot of focus around behaviors, right? Human behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious what what how would you describe your leadership style? Yeah, that's a, I mean that's a good question. Um, you know, I think if so for me when I started Eat Digital. I was very hands-on with, with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that's naturally, you, it's your baby, right? So you feel the need to be extremely hands-on. Sure. Uh, but I made it a focus of me to bring on people that I knew were almost CEOs in their own rights and how they manage their own kind of, uh, in the work streams that we had. Sure. I think for me, it's always motivating and instilling the vision. And making sure that we still have a shared alignment, but mm-hmm. that's why you see one of the values is diversity of thought. Uh-huh. We've created at Eat uh, a culture um, just openness and being able to share. So I allow the team to do what they they need to do. I'm very I hold us accountable to make sure we meet our goals, and then we also do um, things every month called Employees of the Month, where we highlight great work from employees, oh, and so okay. we want to make sure that they feel recognized and appreciated. And so my leadership style is maintaining that we keep the vision, the vision, and, and I'm always on top of that vision and sharing what that looks like, but also sharing the benefit for the organization. I give autonomy, obviously, um, but I'm also, one of the big things for me is availability, mm. right? The team knows that they can reach out to me at any time, night or day. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always available because I, I want them to realize that if they need me, I'm there, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, I, I, that is extremely important for me. So cool. So you got a big launch coming up. And so I just want to focus this on, you know, how can our community, our listeners be of support to you and, and, and eat digital and, and your overall mission. We are launching eat digital in two restaurants by the end of November and then five by the end of the year. The challenging part about this type of startup that we're building and that we've built, it is, it's, it's really difficult to test in a restaurant environment because they're they're not here to test with you, yeah. <laughs> you know, because yeah. it's actually they, they got to run the business. Yeah, <laughs> they got our human room so moving. Not, yeah, it's not like hey, test it out a little bit. No, so, yeah, you like uh, walk in, you're like I have a prototype, <laughs> and they're like, okay, yeah. they're like take that somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but we've benefited honestly, you know from COVID because we did have restaurant closures. Mm. And so that actually gave us some time to be in those units and actually test because they didn't have a lot of foot traffic coming in. And so we can do a lot. We did a lot of testing over the past two and a half years. And so we're launching in those units. I think um, this will give great opportunity for restaurant tours to get a feel and align environment and for guests to get a feel for what we're building. I think the biggest thing for us, we're focusing on Chicago and we're focusing on being very, very focused on serving our initial guests 
and customers the right way. Mm. And so for us, uh, following us on social is the biggest advantage that folks can do for us, especially if you're across parts of the United States. Um, because we want to show restaurants that we have a big uh, following from a B2C perspective and that they can jump on board and trust that, you know, our platform is going to open their eyes to more customers. Uh, because one of the biggest pain points we found for restaurants this past year that COVID exposed is that customers want an easy way to find you. Mm-hmm. And they want an easy way to find you and engage with you in multiple ways. What's mm-hmm. delivery, on-site mobile ordering. But it's expensive for a restaurant to do that because they have to go through DoorDash and some of these other platforms right. that are charging 15 to 30%. And so it's killing the bottom line. And wow. so our platform allows the, the reach and the ability to have a mobile splash page for guests to see their restaurant in their palm of their hands. Uh, digitally and finds you without the cost. Mm-hmm. And so our cost is extremely, extremely low for the restaurant. And our first five restaurants uh, get the platform on a subscription level uh, for free. Very cool. Uh, Jeff Dagbo, so great to meet you. Uh, thank you so much. Thanks for sharing all those insights. And um, we really wish you the best of success. Yes, thank and you I pre- so much. I appreciate Rob and Anya. I appreciate you both. So good to meet you. We'll, um, we'll be back. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Uh, just got through with our conversation with Jeff Dagbo. I will be rooting for Jeff and his team, Nadia, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I was thinking about as we were going through, and he was mentioning some of the competition or some of the things that he's trying to help with with the creation of his of his platform. And I was thinking about how diverse the restaurant industry is and the fact that with all of these these delivery services like Grubhub and DoorDash, like the enormous cost that these restaurant owners face in, in mm. getting their products delivered. And I feel like that's such a huge totally. value extraction from a community that is really important and op- often very d- diverse as well. So, um, yeah. so, I was, so I'm really, we'll be rooting for Jeff and I'll be, be looking for him and, and his uh, platform as it comes out. Yeah, totally. Like there's such an important community to our, you know, diverse um, economic ecosystem, I think. So mm-hmm. yep. absolutely. And then I, as he was speaking, I was thinking about, you know, gosh, he's, he's making kind of all of these different apps or services or platforms, combining it into one, which is his product or his technology and how accessible that is to different communities. Right. Like I think of not to generalize cause not every older person is like this, but I think of my, my parents who are older and don't really want to go to like watch yourself. different apps. Watch yourself. I know. I was just thinking, I'm like, my dad listening. He's going to be like, Nadia, I know how to use my phone. <laughs> no, but you know, they, they, having to go to multiple different apps to order food and then to pay for food and, and to do all these things, that's confusing for, for my parents in particular. And so, um, you know, Jeff had mentioned offline to us that it's not just an app, but there's also a website platform, which I think is really accessible for folks. So in various ways, I think, the fact that he's thinking about the accessibility component of his product is really cool too. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Really All grateful right. to Jeff. Yeah. Is, what, what time is it? All right. I know the, the <laughs> listeners like when I flip a coin, yeah. I don't know if you can even hear that. Uh, obviously we do that much earlier that. in the week, but uh, <laughs> we're going to do rants and raves and okay. I'm going to rave, but Nadia, we're going to have a double rave today. You're going to ra- rant later. You're going to rave right now. Oh, uh, okay. Double, like it's like a double rainbow. It's a rare occurrence. Got it. All right, okay. go, go for I it. I could do that. All squeeze right. One, squeeze an extra one in. Go for it. I love it. So um, really cool. Just the other day, um, 
the mayor of New York City named that the volley would be a public school holiday starting in 2023. For folks that are unaware, the volley is the um, Hindu celebration known as the Festival of Lights. Actually, this year it is celebrated today. So happy Diwali to our listeners. Happy Diwali. Um, yeah, just really cool and inclusive way for the um, the city of New York to recognize this holiday in the public school systems. Love it. Love it. Hopefully uh, more, we get more holidays. Every yeah. Week, right. Yeah. Right? Totally. Um, Eid. Let's do it. Eid 2023, baby. Eid to, <laughs> the next one. <laughs> All right. So I want to rave around about this book. Uh, it's called Anti-Racist Leadership. I'm holding it up here okay. uh, by, by uh, James D. White and Krista White. It was released a few months ago and I'm not sure why I missed it. But Mr. White, who was the former CEO of Jamba Juice, which is another place I love. Uh, okay. Talks about turning around that organization when he became its leader through centering DEI and anti-racism. The okay. reason, Nadia, I love it so much is because it takes a very matter-of-fact, and I think you'll love it as well, uh, it takes a very matter-of-fact position to the idea that the CEO has to be the leader of all DEI efforts in an organization. Nowhere in the book is it up for debate. Uh, so just one thing it says is companies waste millions of dollars developing diversity and anti-bias training programs to throw at any you know, to throw at the problem, training isn't going to stick unless the CEO uh, and senior leadership practice DEI in every minute of every day uh, and make it clear this is how it works. I love How hot this. is that? How hot is uh, that? It's so sexy. It's, 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 I, so it's, it yeah. really is DEI and organizational transformation porn. Uh, so great job by <laughs> James D. White and Crystal White. That's my rave. Rob, I'm going to, I'm going to rant <laughs> now because this aligns to that. Uh, book you just mentioned and the mm -hmm. context i'm so irritated right now with leaders that commit to dei in the workplace and then in their personal life outside in their community and like the space that they live in just don't make the same intentions and i'm just I'm starting to observe a lot around that, you know, spe specifically in the news. Like we talked a couple of weeks ago about, you know, that that coach, the Phoenix Suns coach that was in the workplace. But just imagine like what he probably does outside of the workplace. So I just feel like these leaders are have come. Not all of them. Right. I think there are some that are really making true intentions to really change their behaviors and mindsets. Um, to lead inclusively, to build more diverse teams and really see the value in equity. However, I do, I'm, I'm starting to observe leaders who've made this like grand commitment, this grand pronouncement that they are going to engage with DEI, commit to DEI efforts. But like, what does that mean outside of the workplace? What does that mean for you um, personally? when you are in your community and you're, you know, with your family, um, I just, at least for me, it's like, are you evolving as a humanistic leader? Mm. Um, so that's my rant. Again, it's not all leaders I'm observing. It, it is some in my, some of my interactions. And I just really hope that people start to check the boat because here's the second section of that rant. What mm -hmm. I'm really nervous about as as we enter a recession, if that happens and when that happens, I'm really concerned that leaders are going to cut costs related to DN efforts, and that's mm -hmm. not where they should be cutting costs. So it's like we have to really do a better job of changing 
mindsets and behaviors. And that is not just sending them to a training. That is not just sending leaders to a training. That is really engaging and coaching with really, truly understanding what does it mean for you to be an inclusive leader and reflecting on some of those things. I'll stop branding. <laughs> I love it. No, I was just going to just let you roll. I love it. I think it's a really great call out. And uh, maybe that says we have other guests on. We can we can talk about how, what they're doing outside of uh, their organizational efforts as well. I think it's a yeah. good call out. Totally. So thanks so much for that, Nadia. Thank you. Well, thank you to our guest, Jeff Dagbo of um, eDigital. Happy to have him on. Thank you to our listeners. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. We would love to hear from you. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are on, You can find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, um, and now Twitter. We are on Twitter oh, no. officially. No. I know. <laughs> you have Tw thoughts about Does that. Does Twitter exist? Yes. Yeah, well, okay. I mean, lots of lots going on at uh, Twitter right now. Maybe that's a story for next week. But um, if you want to get in touch with us for consulting purposes, check out um, me at nasconsultants.com and Rob at TakanaConsulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Jeff. Um, we'll be back next week. See you, folks. Be well. Bye.